everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feeling. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> Okay, guys, we're excited about today because this is a first for us. We have a guest joining us on our podcast today. So it's not just going to be the same two voices you guys have listened to over and over again. We've got a whole brand new voice, and that is the voice of the one and only Kyle. Kyle, I don't actually know how to say your last name. Say it for me. Vandalist. Hey, Vandalist. There we go. Mate, Delete. wonderful to have you here. So, Kyle, just before we jump into what we're going to be talking about today, just give us a, a just a quick spiel, 20 seconds. Who are you, mate? Why have we got you on the show today? Um, I'm Kyle Vandalist. I'm the founder, director of Level Up Health, a qualified naturopath and nutritionist. And my goal is just to make the best supplements in the world to give people what they need to heal and to help wonderful practitioners like yourselves have the, the tools to actually get people the results that they want. Mate, that was perfect. Put in the spot and that was perfect. So what I love about kind of where this industry has gone I feel like over the last couple of years, there's been like a bit of a community of people emerging. And Kyle's been one of those people who's really been centered to that community of, of, of coaches and naturopaths and practitioners just working together, trying to do the best for their clients and their patients. And so Kyle, like you said, you know, you develop these, these supplements, which are, in my opinion, um, some of the best gut healing supplements in the world. And they actually use ingredients that basically no other supplement company use. And, and these are a particular type of ingredient which are called peptides. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. For some of you guys, you will have heard that word before. You will have heard Dave and I talk about peptides. And some of you might be like, pep, what? Like that sounds like an illegal thing. What's that all about? So today we're going to jump all into what peptides are, why they've got maybe a little bit of a bad name and whether or not that might be justified. And then we're going to talk about a few of our favorite peptides, ones we use with ourselves, ones we use with our clients, and maybe some that might be emerging on the horizon that we might be looking at using in the future as well. So before we jump into all that fun stuff, Dave, why would someone use peptides? Do you want to sort of open that conversation up a bit? Yeah, well, I think, but once again, this is from my perspective, okay, I think peptide therapy actually has the ability, I mean, can I say this? Yeah, okay. The, the ability to actually, um, even replace a lot of pharmaceuticals. Um, and I mean, it's, a, it's a bit of a dirty word. I'm sure you guys would agree with me on that. I guess pharmaceutical, it is a dirty word. <laughs> <laughs> like when you say peptides, maybe this is probably a little bit more so in Australia. Okay. But when you, when you say peptides, you know, people think of the Essendon football saga and, um, you know, the negatives around that, or they have, you know, some image or there's some guy making these peptides in his backyard. Okay. But if you actually look at it, I mean, you know, around adverse reactions with peptides, I mean, we've talked about this when people like use injectable. Okay. A lot of time the, you know, the most adverse reaction that they might get is they get a bit of a rash around the point of injection. Okay. Um, and also like, I think people just don't really understand what peptides are. Yeah. Okay. Um, and they're just like chains of amino acids. I mean, even if you look at it from a, I mean, I don't know how deep we want to go into this. Okay. But they're like, you know, you use like synthetic peptides. Okay. And they're, 
chemically synthesized small polymer of amino acids. That's what they are. I mean, I don't know if Kai wants to go a little bit deeper than that. Okay. But I think you, you have the option around like peptides is like recombinant proteins. Okay. Uh, I think the reason they might go for the synthetic, okay. Um, correct me if I'm wrong around this Kyle. Okay. is just that they can be a lot more quicker acting. Okay. Yeah. I think that might be one of the major reasons. So I just think, um, and if, if I just look at some, like, let's do a bit of a comparison maybe. Okay. Um, and I'm obviously, you know, I could probably reel off a lot more than this, but I'm just going to reel off some, some stats. Okay. So when it comes to maybe like adverse reactions with like pharmaceuticals, I think, you know, pharmaceutical, like, you know, deaths associated with uh, adverse reactions to pharmaceuticals can account, and these would be US stats that I'd be quoting here. Okay. They can account for anywhere up to about maybe 6.7%, up to maybe as much as 12%. Okay. And I think like within the US, that could account for about 105,000 deaths. Okay. Um, I don't know, like if, if you have any stats on this Kyle. okay, but how many deaths do peptides actually account for every year? I mean, it's not something actually I've looked up, but I, I would imagine. It's not something you'd have the answer to either, because it's not something that people are actively tracking. It's not, as you said, they're not something that most, um, physicians would actually prescribe to people. So it's not being tracked. It's. But from a mechanistic perspective, it's not something that's going to cause, uh, any side effects. Like they are majority of them. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure most of them, because they're so small peptides are between two or three amino acids up to 50 amino acids long. So these are small enough to float around in circulation. And it's the, it's hydrolase enzymes in your body that actually just break these down into individual amino acids, which then go and do whatever, whatever the amino acid by itself would needed to do so there's no interactions with drugs in the liver or the cyp enzymes any of that sort of stuff like pharmaceuticals or even uh, botanicals would have so as far as safety profile they did um toxicity studies on bbc and animal models and when you convert the amount that they found as a toxic level to human levels it's 125 grams of bpc is that ld50 level which i don't know if anyone knows how much you use but it's in the microgram amounts so to take 125 grams of a peptide to get the ld50 is going to cost you like not only an exorbitant amount probably as much as a house to actually get to ld50 so safety profile on them the um, therapeutic window is huge and um the fact that they're not widely used i know it annoys you dave but it annoys me as well because when you look at um, injuries and things like that, quarter, quarter, cortisone injections, if people have an injury, why would they use that when it actually increases the, um, the chance of injuring that side? It might remove your pain, but something like BPC should be ubiquitous in all sort of sport as both a preventative thing, not only for connective tissue and muscular injuries, but for the TBI, traumatic brain injury. There's heaps of studies on BPC for TBI and post-concussive syndrome and all that sort of stuff that the fact that WADA have banned it in sports just kind of goes to show me the, um, the corruption or the pharmaceutical interests at play. And I think Dave Asprey had a great, um, post he put up before he said, some of the best, uh, performance enhancing substances are all correlated nicely on the WADA list. So, <laughs> um, and BPC has recently made its way onto that list for professional athletes, which again, as I said, is a real shame, but yep. yeah, 
I mean, because when you, when you obviously look at that with BPC-157, I mean, it is a potential replacement for cortisone, corticosteroids, and even like reconstructive surgery. I mean, that's obviously how good it is. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even like when they, you know, they've used cortisone, if you look at some of these things that they're commonly using for athletic performance, I mean, wherever like they, they're injecting the cortisone, they've actually shown that that actually can weaken the bone around that region. Okay. And then also like, you know, they're using things like NSAIDs. So like ibuprofen, like anti-inflammatories. Okay. And that she's shown that NSAIDs, they actually have a, a negative impact on satellite cells. So we're talking about like satellite cells. We're talking about like hypertrophy. Uh, we're talking about the muscle. Okay. So that's in turn, that's going to have a negative impact on the ability of that muscle to repair and rejuvenate. I mean, and these are the things that they're commonly using in sport with, uh, with athletes. Okay. And you look at something like BPC-157, which is, I'm sure you're going to go into it, is very well, well documented around, you know, helping with joints and tendons and ligaments and uh, helping with that connective tissue and also helping with things like the blood-brain barrier. I, mean, I know you don't know you're going to probably go into a lot more, okay? It just seems like mad, okay, that all the adverse reactions that have been uh you know, not even documented, yeah, it's only hearsay really when it comes to something like BPC 157, they're just speculative. Okay. So it actually hasn't even been proven. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yet, and I would imagine that there's no deaths associated with BPC 157. Yeah. Okay. Um, so for something that has not been associated with any deaths, I mean, all the, uh, proposed, uh, adverse reactions are speculative that gets banned, but then you can actually look at things like NSAIDs and cortisone and they actually do cause problems. Yeah. I think the big reason why BPC got banned is it has an affinity for upregulating growth hormone receptor density. And even though that's not like direct growth hormone, like the secreted gogs like MK677 or ipatessamorelin, the fact that it can upregulate those growth hormone receptors was their really weak justification for why it was banned. Um, but yeah, as you said, the fact that there's so many things that are given to athletes. I'm a fan of the NBA. I watched um, Kevin Durant suffered a, a really bad, uh, I think it was his Achilles tendon injury. And it was well known prior to that. Before every game, he was getting cortisone injections. And the fact that he had that Achilles injury is just little, very little surprise when you understand how destructive it is to the connective tissue. And as you were saying, the satellite cells in the muscle too. So something like that really should be used. And I believe I can't confirm because it was never confirmed, but Kobe Bryant back when he did his Achilles injury, went over to Germany, he got things like platelet rich plasma injections and BPC was part of his protocol. So it's been used in sport. It's just something that Australians kind of need to get over the um, media hype around peptides too. I know you mentioned the Essendon bomber scandal back in 2012, I believe. They were taking a full peptide protocol. And now whenever anyone mentions peptide in Australia, there's like that imagery of, oh, you're shooting up like a, like a bodybuilder jabbing up steroids or something like that. But they don't have to be. I mean, a lot of peptides are only available and only efficacious if they're injected, but there's also a heap of them that can be used topically or intranasally or like BPC and a few others, you can use them orally as well. So we can have a chat about those ones if you're interested. Let's, let's take a step back. So I'm just aware that for some people they may still not know what a peptide is. Let's go there. So 
maybe Kyle, do you want to tell us a little bit about what actually is a peptide? And you've just mentioned, obviously, they can be injected, they can be intranasal, some can be intranasal, some can be oral consumed. So, but what actually is it? It's just a short chain of amino acids. And when that amino acid is um, put into a chain, it has an it elicits uh, an effect, um, usually extracellularly, and then it'll go and transcribe or all sorts of, um, it will transcribe at the genome level to create um, certain proteins or upregulate inflammatory processes or trigger things like VEGF or EGF. But really simply, it's just a chain of amino acids between three and 50 proteins long. Mm -hmm. And so millions of people inject peptides daily, don't they? So the most common would be insulin. And so people, I guess, don't really think about that as a peptide, but essentially that's what it is. Collagen technically would, would be a peptide. So these are things that they're not a big, scary thing. Like you said, it's just a sequence of amino acids. And these, these amino acids, when they're combined in particular order, they signal the body to do a particular action, don't they? So it's not this big, scary thing. It's, it's really just amino acids combined. So if that's all it is, do we want to just touch on kind of what that, because people may have heard about this bombing scandal, but they may not really know too much about it. We've, we've alluded to it twice now. Do we want to just quickly cover what that was about? Yeah, I can do that. Um, to wrap up sort of what peptides are, they're actually naturally found in your body, just like insulin is. There's about 9,000 peptides that exist. We don't know all of them, but you know, insulin is a very simple one that we can just, we can, we all know about. BPC is made in the stomach acid, things like thymosin is made in the thymus gland. So they're all naturally occurring just in trace amounts. But yeah, um, back in 2012, the Essendon bombers, um, there was a big scandal, the, the dank drug Essendon bomber peptide scandal, where a heap of players got, ended up getting banned. Um, they used a combination of peptides called TB500 or TB4, it was 500 they used. And one called AOD9604 or something like that. I can't remember the exact code for it. But they use those two injectable. And they also use colostrum and tribulus um, subcutaneous injection as well. And, you know, they got in a lot of trouble. Their management in Essendon got in trouble. But at the time, they weren't banned. All it did was kind of make the AFL and ASADA, the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Association or Agency, look kind of silly that all these players for Essendon just came out of nowhere looking like super soldiers and winning pretty well compared to the previous season. So I think there's been a lot of the, the media did a terrible job of making the players seem like they're drug cheats when realistically they were just cutting edge biohackers back then. Yeah, you, and you actually said like, actually a lot of these compounds, like after that, you know, which weren't necessarily banned by WADA, then they actually became a problem. Like, we did speak about like uh, some like bovine colostrum, which helps with like growth factors and helps with some like IGF-1. So that might be why it's on the WADA list. Okay. But obviously with some like bovine colostrum, obviously we talk all the, all the time about goat's colostrum. Okay. Um, if you look at helping with like immunoglobulins and proline rich peptides and things like lactoferrin and lactoperoxidase, like all the benefits there. Okay. It just seems madness once again. Okay, just based on that, okay, and I would, I would agree with you, they've just been more cutting edge, okay? Um, it's just madness that as a result of that, okay, that just goes on the, the wider band list. Australian tall poppy syndrome, rather than like looking to these people and say, oh my God, how did you get like so athletic? How did you get so muscular? How is your squad recovering so quickly? 
instead of like trying to meet them where they're at, they just brought them back down to the rest and even the playing field. And we can't see that a lot, not just in sports, but you know, where one person has a bad reaction and everything gets, it gets ruined for everyone else. So that's kind of fortunate reality of Australia, but. And one, one, one thing that I, like, I don't know if you've done a bit of research on this one, Kyle, but uh, have you ever heard of like Solank? Like I, I've, I've talked about this one uh, yep. before, but they actually, they use it in Russia. So they actually use it for the treatment of, um, like depression basically. Okay. Um, so, well, they use it as a replacement for anti-anxiety medications and that would be things like benzodiazepines. Okay. Which actually like, I, I did some research on that cause I was just interested. Okay. And there's like something like 12,290 deaths associated with benzodiazepines. Okay. So it's, it's a huge amount of deaths. Yeah. Okay. And if you actually look at it, they've, they've noticed with Solank, okay, which I think is the Tufsin peptide and then another sequence or something like that. Okay. Um, but that helps with like memory, uh, cognitive function. Yeah. Okay. Like if you look at it, you just look at the stats and you go, well, 12,290 deaths. Okay. Or like this one's, you know, they, they haven't documented any, you know, negative side effects. I'm not saying that, you know, that's conclusive. Yeah. Okay but they haven't really documented any, uh, adverse reactions. Okay. And then the Russians look at that. Okay. Which from my perspective, some of the smartest scientists going around. Okay. And just go, well, actually we should be using this instead of the benzodiazepine. Okay. Uh, there's just so many examples of that. I think yeah, with the benzos too, obviously that's, I'd say that number is just direct results of that, let alone all of the the issues that come with it and that might be indirectly linked to that versus C Lank, C Max, they last for four hours and then they're broken down in circulation after they've had their effect. The peptide itself just transcribes for the actual effect more so than it is the thing that does the effect like a drug would. So you're not going to have the issues of benzos with C, C Lank or C Max is the other one that I've tried nasally. It was a combination of those two, but yeah, they're really interesting peptides and Russia has plenty of studies. They love their peptides and it's quite frustrating as a formulator when you're trying to look into the studies on peptides, you find a great one and then it's just completely in Russian. So, um, <laughs> they've very, very much been cutting edge with it. And, um, Russia, uh, Vladimir Kavinson from Russia is probably the pioneer of all peptide research and bioregulators too, which are a complete other topic, other, um, category and peptides you can discuss in the future once I know a bit more about them. So that's interesting that he said a lot of this research has come out of Russia. So, because some of this stuff is quite old, isn't it? Like the, some of the peptide research, we're talking decades old, aren't we? Eastern Europe, yeah. 90s was when a lot of the BPC studies came out because they pushed it when they thought it could be a pharmaceutical drug. When it was later revealed that like, you can't patent something naturally found in stomach acid, then a lot of it dried up and it's never progressed to human studies because who's going to spend... Like I, I was on the phone with a consultant who was... I was trying to get approval to use the products legitimately as a registered product in Australia. And they said impossible unless you're willing to conduct like 10 studies in humans over a period of time with, you know, like minimum 50 participants. And by the time you do the cost on it, it costs you like over $30 million to, uh, to then only have a, to have an ingredient, which is non-patentable, which any other company could just say, oh, thanks for spending the money. We're going to make our own BPC product with $30 million we didn't have to spend. So. so it's interesting, isn't it? If you look at this objectively, if you try to sort of disassociate in the world we live in and you look at the two options ahead of someone where they can take 
pharmaceuticals, they can take corticosteroids, they can take anti-inflammatories, and there's going to be X, Y, Z side effect of that. There's going to be the slowing down of healing. The healing process is going to be potentially increased chances of injuring yourself again in the future. And then on the alternative hand, you've got something like BPC, which has effectively no side effects, which will actually speed the healing and recovery time. It just doesn't really make sense which one of those two is banned, does it? So you sort of have, like if you you have to suspend you know disbelief to kind of get to a point where you can understand what's going on. And clearly, it's there's something a little bit funny at play here. It's not just about the logical solution or logical outcome. It's clearly driven by other alternative motivators. But, you actually just you actually sorry to interrupt. No, okay, yeah. But uh, you just jogged my memory on something because even if you look at something like you know topical corticosteroids, oh. or that once again they've shown in literature that where that actually delays like utilizing them actually delays wound healing yeah yeah exactly <laughs> um i mean obviously and then once again if you look at the peptides and i, I know we're probably going to cover this one like something like you know one of my favorites like ghk the copper peptide okay i mean you know when it comes to collagen synthesis and actually helping with like repair of like i mean just so many tissue areas okay like it's not just like the epithelium in the lungs and the epithelium in the gastrointestinal tract it's like the liver it's the skin it's the scalp yeah okay and you know using something like ghk okay instead of something like a topical corticosteroid okay which seems to be delaying it okay just once again it's sort of like mind-boggling when you sit there and think about it i'd like to delve down like gut healing too like we're talking about mainstream treatments we'll look at if someone has crohn's or colitis what the mainstream medicines are for that they're like immunotherapies that's root cause medicine you something like infliximab targeting a cytokine as oh that cytokine is the problem therefore we need to you know, give them a drug either injectable or oral to attack the cytokine like you you miss you're missing the point completely if you're going after something like crohn's or colitis you want to go after the leaky gut over the lipopolysaccharide inducing inflammatory response throughout the body it's it's just mad anything that they aren't the standard of care, especially when practitioners who use them like yourselves see huge benefit to things like BPC or copper peptide or even a new one, KPV. A lot of the American practitioners using them are using these peptides for bowel disease and Crohn's colitis, celiac disease. Root cause medicine is just not really considered when it comes to drug, drug treatment. Well, it just seems crazy when you've got like an issue, which really is this damage to like, if you look at like, just use Crohn's as an example, which is really damaged to the, the epithelium within the colon. Okay. Um, and obviously within the large intestine, and that's like, you know, one of the major types of epithelium in the colon is goblet cells. So there's severe damage to the goblet cells. And once again, this is predominantly like type one collagen, type three collagen. Okay. And so when they, when they, when they're dealing with things like Crohn's and ulcerated colitis, once again, that splitting of the epithelium, again, that's why they're getting bleeding. That's why they're passing blood. Where is the procedure to actually help with the tissue rejuvenation? <laughs> okay. So there's not like, like and, and, and something like BPC-157, GHK for collagen synthesis, for the repair of that tissue. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to get anything better than those, than those particular peptide compounds. You can see why they're so ubiquitous. Like you, you hit the nail on the head. It just helps with collagen synthesis. It's the most abundant amino acid in your body. It's pretty much every organ system, every barrier relies on collagen. So if you help your body make collagen networks better and 
I think a big thing to focus on is removal of glyphosate too, because there's a lot of work from Stephanie Seneff who talks about, you know, glycine and, and glyphosate, you know, molecularly similar and creating poor collagen networks. But that's sort of a, a side tangent, but yeah, just targeting collagen synthesis and blood flow, like the angiogenic effect to actually deliver the, the nutrients the intestinal epithelium needs as well with which BPC will do systemically, not just locally, that can really help um, get to the root cause of these problems. I don't know where to go after that. You just mentioned <laughs> something really interesting with Stephanie Seneff. And I think I just want to make a little side note there that because some people may have heard her name and, and maybe, you know, similar to peptide, maybe it's got a, a negative connotation. And I would just encourage people, if you have heard anything negative about Seneff's work, just look into the studies that she's published and look into the mechanisms she talks about because it, it is one of these things where it's very easy for smear campaigns to try to discredit science. And I found this, like for myself, very interesting when I was looking into her work that we've actually got mechanistic um, studies that, that explain the same thing occurring in, in other compounds, not just in glyphosate and, and this sort of molecular mimicry. And yet a lot of her critics would say, well, this is impossible that glyphosate could do this, but, but yet we've got natural examples of this occurring elsewhere. So it is, if you guys have never heard of her, I do recommend you check it out and look at the potential effect of, of glyphosate on glycine misfolding and potentially damaging collagen. That's a good point, Kyle. So look, let's jump more into BPC because this is probably the peptide we all use the most would be my guess. Um, and you've, we've now talked a little bit about how there's benefit there for wound healing. There's benefit there from a, a gut perspective, from an IBD perspective. What else can it do? It sounds like this is a pretty magic peptide. So maybe Carl, tell us a little bit else. What is the cheat? What, what it can, yeah, ultimately achieve. Well, a big thing, um, that a lot of people have heard from with Lucas, for example, a friend ergogenic health uses it for is for brain function. It has an effect on the dopaminergic, serotonergic and gabagenergic systems in the brain. So as like a nootropic itself, um, not only from a direct effect on those systems, but also as we were going to discuss Dave, um, that blood brain barrier sealing that up preventing the inflammatory cytokines and systemic um, endotoxin or LPS from actually getting to our most precious organ um, is going to help just have an indirect effect on cognitive function because you're going to reduce the amount of inflammation in the brain. So that's a huge one and a big reason why I like it. And I feel like it's probably another big reason why people sleep improves when they're on it. Just that sealing of that barrier is, is probably one of the most beneficial things you can do for your brain. Um, Beyond that, uh, bone healing, uh, there's been dental studies where it helps with healing of, um, of the, te- uh, forgotten the word, but basically it just helps with, um, dental work, helping I've that heal. i a story on that actually, Kyle, I had a client who got their wisdom teeth taken out and I got them to take BPC and I think maybe it was like a, a week after and they went to get the like follow up or a checkup and the surgeon who took out the teeth, he goes, he was like an old boy. Like he'd been doing this like 50 years and he goes, I don't understand what's going on. I've never seen healing occur that quickly. What are you doing? And this <laughs> guy goes, oh, I'm, I'm taking BPC. It's a peptide. And the surgeon goes, I don't want to know. I don't want to know about it. That's legal. Don't tell me. Just like totally shut down. But yeah. like he'd just seen how well it had worked for healing. Yep. 
yeah, I don't, I don't know what the logic is behind that person. I, I know from my perspective, if someone had done something incredible like that, I want to know everything about it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, beyond that effect, obviously that's, that's awesome. I had, um, a very similar case of one of my mates from where I grew up took uh, mega doses of BPCD because he had an ACL rupture and nine, wait, nine weeks later, he's actually back playing already, which yeah, pretty unheard of. So. Um, it's, it's a quote that's thrown around pretty, um, loosely in people who talk about BPC, but they reckon it just halves the injury, um, healing time from what I've heard and from customers and from friends and even personally with things like golfer's elbow, it definitely, definitely does as advertised. But one thing to let people know is it is a research chemical. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there's not a heap of human studies on it. So it's important to mention that. It doesn't mean you don't use it because what we've seen and what we've heard and thousands of people have reported back is it does work and I'm not going to sit around on my hands waiting for a study to show me what I already know about it. You mentioned earlier um, about the the toxicity studies in mice. Did they, my understanding was they performed toxicity studies in humans last year, two years ago. Did you see that study? I haven't looked at um, one in humans. All I did was convert the um, the mice study to humans. And yeah, it was 125 grams for the theoretical LD50, but I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure there was one in humans and they went up to, it was something like 20 or 30 grams a day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's obviously no, well, actually what they found, there was no negative side effects, but they found that there was no, um, basically like no diminishing returns in terms of the efficacy of the BPC and that they could just keep dosing higher, 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 and just kept having an effect. And I know, like, personally, I, I herniated a disc in my back a few years ago, and I, like, it was really bad. Like, I was full impingement. I couldn't walk. I tried to go upstairs. My leg just gave way. And I was going, I think I was taking your BPC at the time, and I was just, like, going to town, and I was having, like, literally, every, I just filled my pockets with it. Every time I thought, I just took a, a tablet, a capsule of BPC and a capsule of curcumin, and within, I reckon within four weeks, I was hitting a PB in my squat. And that's from not being able to walk. Far out. That's awesome. <laughs> one thing that I just wanted to mention, Kyle, and I know you're going to go into a little bit more is, so one of the mechanisms that BPC works on is angiogenesis. It's like the formation of like new blood vessels. So, and then, I mean, obviously this, this is a good mechanism, okay. But obviously one of the things that they sort of clinged on to with this, okay, is that, uh, maybe, okay. And once again, it was just speculative, okay. That was something like angiogenesis that, that could actually speed up, you know, the potential around like tumor growth. So it could actually have some negatives around cancer. Okay. Uh, one thing that I read about is obviously they went away and started to do some research on, uh, this aspect, okay. And how, you know how BPC-157 um, does, you know, uh, int- like uh, interrelate. Inter- I don't even know what I'm trying to spit out here. Okay. <laughs> it's like with some like cancer and they actually showed that actually did have benefits around, potentially around cancer. Okay. So uh, I don't know if there's anything that you sort of want to um, talk I'll, about in regards to that. I'll steal an analogy about that. Like angiogenesis with cancer is like flaming firemen for the fire, you know, the, just cause they're around, just cause it's one of the things that contributes to it. It's not really the cause. It is one of the hallmarks of cancer. So obviously it's justified people being concerned about it because the cancer cells don't like form properly 
So they're trying to get as steal as many nutrients as they can. So they upregulate that process as much as they can to steal as much sugar from the rest of the body to try and get themselves fed energetically because their mitochondria is broken. That's sort of off topic. The point is angiogenesis, It from BPC, it's not going to force angiogenesis. Where it's needed, it will help. It will stimulate that effect. If you don't actually need angiogenesis, it's not like erythropoietin or EPO. It's not going to force angiogenesis beyond what the body needs. So that mechanism has never been proven in cancer. And as you said, Dave, it's sort of like the opposite. And knowing how it works in reduction of inflammation by sealing the um, tight junctions of the epithelium, you're going to get a net benefit for cancer by reducing your overall inflammatory burden in the body. So, you know, to not use it or to be scared of it because of that one mechanism when you're getting eight other benefits is sort of like, throwing the baby out with a bathwater. So BPC, so let's talk about dosing, like you need to cycle it, how do you take it? Let's go down that path. Uh, it's, so, um, it's so unsettled on how you should do it, but my advice generally to people is anytime you're targeting a specific receptor or bunch of receptors, you should probably cycle off it. So I just tell people five days on, two days off, or if you've got something really chronic like someone having a flare with Crohn's or colitis, you push it as long as you need to. And then once you're finished, sort of add one week for every month that you took it. So if you took a full month, then you take a week off at the end of the month. Or if you did it for two months straight, then you take two weeks on before you look at doing it again. But man, I've used it for over two years now and I've never really been particularly bothered about cycling off it. That's, you know, um, my personal thing, but you know, it's, like anything really like testosterone or any of these other hormones insulin if you trigger that too much you get it receptor down regulation or stuff like that so what's the half-life with bpc do you know uh four hours so you would think if you just took one day off it's all gonna be out of your system yeah it's not like other drugs or peptides where it hangs around for 16 hours 24 hours and constantly hammering the receptor it gets in triggers what it needs to do and then sort of gets out and it's broken down. It's very fast acting. And, um, because of that, I don't think you need to worry too much, but just earring on the side of caution, um, five days on two days off is probably the best way to do it. Or you can do three days on one day off, two days on one day off, whatever. It's not something you need to worry about. You're not going to hurt yourself by cycling off it or have to really get on the weeds with that. And is it like, maybe like, is it important to. And I, once again, I don't know if this is documented, but if, if, if we want to improve something like the blood brain barrier in this instance, I mean, could something like a, like a nasal, uh, BPC have a little bit more benefit around that? I'm sure you probably know the answer to this. And I mean, obviously I know it's going to have what like, benefit to some of the like NOLTS, like nasal associated lymphoid tissue. Okay. So is that going to be a little bit more beneficial for the blood brain barrier? And if it's more like, okay, like you know, tendons, ligaments, cartilage. I mean, is that like an injectable right into the point of pain or the point of injury? Is that going to be a little bit more beneficial? And if it's like, once I know I'm asking you a million questions all on one, one, gotcha. one hit here. Okay. Yeah. But if it's more like, okay, if it's actually just the, the epithelium and the gastrointestinal tract, is that where oral is going to be a little bit more beneficial? I know it's, you know, obviously very well documented, sort of like intramuscular subcutaneous, like injectable into the midline, but Maybe it's important for people to uh, maybe understand in terms of, you know, what form, uh, or is there a huge amount of differences between these? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
all right, a lot to go off there. I'll start <laughs> by saying, like, where do you want the peptide to work? What is your purpose for taking this? If it's for gut healing, then you would want a capsule. If it's for healing the stomach, then you want that capsule not to be enteric coated. If it's for healing the small intestine, large intestine, then maybe you would want an enteric coated. If your purpose is for healing the blood brain barrier, then a nasal spray would probably be the most efficacious. It's not to say that taking a capsule is not going to have that effect. Once the peptide, if you were to take it orally, has been absorbed, it gets systemic and goes around all to all the goes through all your blood to pretty much get wherever it's needed. Um, John Francois quote was quoted at saying it's like a smart peptide. It finds sites of inflammation and areas in the body where it is needed and will almost be um, just find where it needs to be. But um, oral versus injectable versus nasal um, is not a huge amount of like, I couldn't tell you, oh, this study shows that doing it injectably works better than orally. All I know is sort of the absorption um, statistics on oral versus injectable. And you lose between 5 and 10% when you do it orally versus if you were to do it injectably. And I think na intranasally, you might, get, I think it's about 80 to 85% absorption because it, it, but this depends on which peptide you're talking about. BPC is 15 amino acids and it's small enough that in like in intranasally, it will absorb. It's small enough that topically, if you use an absorption enhancer, it can absorb too. Or if you have a, a wound that you want to heal, you can apply it as a lotion or you could even use the injectable peptide, just putting it locally on your wound. But there's larger peptides, which won't work um, orally or they won't work any other mechanism other than injectable because the gut might break it down or it won't cross the barrier for through a nasal spray, things like... Um, well, that, and that's, that's, that's probably really important for a lot of people to understand because it seems like you can pretty much get every single peptide in a nasal spray. Mm. So, Well, I've tried melanotan, melanotan too, nasally, and it did nothing. And I tried it with uh, injectable and I looked, looked very brown within two weeks. So it's just pharmacodynamics, uh, I think, or kinetic, yeah, dynamics is what you need to consider with these things. Um, the, so the main one with BBC is... Um, injectable you're getting a hundred percent of what you inject so that is the best and i'm not gonna just because i sell an oral one i'm not gonna say don't do injectable of course do injectable just be careful when you do get your peptides and you inject them that you look for the purity because with oral it's not as important because with things like impurities you're looking at things like heavy metals like i don't know which metals there are it would really depend on where you got them but Cheap ones from China might have things like mercury in it or aluminium. I'm not saying they do. I saw a study, Carl, where there was a Chinese source and it had LPS in it. <laughs> wow, great. That's exactly what you want injected intra <laughs> straight into the bloodstream. Not over. I mean, that's that's bad enough if you were to do it orally. You know, LPS basically completely mitigate the Bennett will not mitigate, but be contrary indicated for the effect of in which you're taking BBC. But if you're taking some, uh, an injectable that has a trace amount, it might only be 1%. If you're taking an injectable that has a tiny bit of um, heavy metals in it, a hundred percent of those heavy metals are going to be injected into you. And use. Usually in these, um, 
injectable protocols, you do a few days to a few weeks to a few problems, you know, like heavy metal toxicities, which is the last thing you'd ever want when you're trying to heal yourself with a peptide. I think we lost you a little bit there for a sec, Kyle. Do you want to just, um, maybe just repeat the last bit for us? Um, I was saying basically injectably, if you have a 1% or even a 0.5% impurity in the peptide that you're injecting, 100% of that impurity is actually making it systemically. And if you, in most protocols, they last for days to weeks. And some people even might do them months where they'll inject three or four times a month. That's going to accumulate to a point where you might actually end up with the toxicity of whatever heavy metal or whatever whatever else is in there that could cause really bad effects in, to the system. Versus if you were to take a peptide orally, uh, like the ones we use, if there was an impurity in that, your your gut lining, your um, intestinal epithelium isn't going to allow much of that to be to go across the, the membrane. I think it. last time I was looking at mercury or aluminium, 0.1% of it's actually absorbed orally versus if there's a tiny, tiny bit of aluminium, and this is where the whole vaccine thing comes in where people don't want those adjuvants, 100% of that is absorbed systemically. So making sure peptide purity is like, perfect is what you'd need if you're doing injectables where intranasal i'm not sure heavy metal absorption for intranasal but orally i know that 0.1 percent put mind at ease for um oral preparations it's an interesting point you see people use this argument all the time where they're like oh it doesn't matter if you inject x amount of aluminium because you eat this much every day and it's like uh yeah but 100 percent of it is absorbed when i inject it <laughs> exactly <laughs> so could we say that like a lot of the you know a lot of the adverse reactions that people might get in relation to like peptide therapy is just a lot of the time just coming down to the quality. Exactly. Some people have histamine reactions, as you mentioned, Dave, and that only ever really comes from um, the in local injection site. People are reacting to a lot of the time the peptides that you buy and you, then you have to reconstitute. The bacteriostatic water might be the issue or a lot of them use things like, like um, I mannose or, or, or sugar that people might be reacting to that as well it's not humid in those in those vials that you buy so the peptide itself it, it is found in people trace amount each of them apart from synthetic ones like mk677 most of them are found in the body that by if it's like 500 it's made in your thymus in your thymus gland if it's bpc it's made in your gastric juices in in your um in your stomach even things like the brain ones are made in your brain. Cerebral license, another one that people use um, as a peptide. So, you know, they're very safe. And um, yeah, I kind of lost where I was going with that one. But <laughs> Well, it might be time we move on to another one. Dave, you're probably chomping at the bit to talk about GHK. So maybe we should just unleash you and let you go. Do you want to tell us about GHK? Yeah, well, I do have a, as you know, I have a slight obsession. I'm, I think Kyle knows that as well. I have a slight obsession with uh, GHK, which uh, for people who don't know, the copper peptide, and I'm sure Kyle's going to, um, like I know you, you might be coming up with a, uh, like a topical GHK. I'd, I'd, hopefully I haven't put you on the spot with that one, but. Um, yeah. In the uh, works. Sorry? It's in the works, yep. Yeah, it's in the works. Yeah, okay. So basically to people who don't know, okay, like you, in terms of the chains of amino acids, you've got uh, three amino acids here, L-histidine, L-lysine, L-glycine. Okay. Um, and in terms of, I guess, what, what's my interest around, uh, you know, something like GHK is, especially from an inflammatory perspective. So I would say like 
if you're looking at something like uh, within your blood markers, if someone's got really high ESR, that's a erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So that's the rate at which your red blood cells sediment within a given hour. Okay. And a lot of the time that can be a sign of like high immunoglobin activity or, uh, basically it, it can be a sign of, uh, uh, like rule lay, this is where the, like the red blood cells are sticking and clumping together. Okay. And that's a sign of like high amounts of inflammation. So where I think I started to get really interested with GHK in, in terms of some of the research that I was looking at is actually found that GHK could actually deactivate inflammatory genes. Okay. So there was even like documentation where it actually suppresses NF kappa B. So I'm probably going to get pretty technical here. Okay. Um, and I, I sort of, I do talk about NF kappa B quite a fair bit and NF kappa B is a pro-inflammatory protein that does get raised through things like the cytokine storm. So that would be things like respiratory viruses. Okay. And also like, um, negative gram bacteria, LPS. Okay. So they actually found that GHK could actually, um, suppress NF kappa B and NF kappa B has actually been linked to things like, uh, inflammatory conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, okay. Uh, even like multiple sclerosis. Okay. So. Yeah, huge benefits around like uh, inflammation and even like the, the, they've actually even shown that. So there's a, a particular, it's a, it's a glycoprotein, okay? Uh, and it's, it's a thing called fibrinogen, okay? So fibrinogen is actually synthesized in the liver, okay? And actually it, it helps with the production of like pro-inflammatory proteins. So some of these pro-inflammatory proteins like CRP, C-reactive proteins. So we obviously check that within blood markers. And also SAA, which is serum amyloid alpha. Okay. So what actually showed, okay, is that GHK actually helps to inhibit the synthesis of fibrinogen from the liver. Once again, just in, in terms of its ability to reduce inflammatory load. So if you've got like people with, you know, inflammatory conditions, okay. Uh, once again, I, I'd be looking at it if, if people have a high raise in the, like these pro-inflammatory proteins, okay. GHK can, can work really well in this instance. Now, obviously, you know, it helps with like collagen synthesis and actually helps with, uh, tissue wound healing. So, you know, similar mechanisms to, to, to what BPC-157 does. Yeah. Okay. Um, but where I, once again, I was starting to really get quite intrigued with something like GHK. Okay. Is that they actually did some research and they actually found that it actually helped to, with like LPS induced uh, like, uh, acute lung injury. Okay. Now that basically means that it's going to actually have benefits around the negative, uh, ramifications that occur from LPS exposure. Because obviously LPS raises a lot of these pro-inflammatory proteins, NF-kappa B, 10, NF-alpha, interleukin-1, interleukin-6. Okay. So they actually found that, um, huge benefits with the, with the lungs. Okay. And actually GHK has been used for like COPD. Okay. So that's inflammation of the lungs. Okay. Um, so like lung disease, even they've used it around like, like asthma. So other respiratory problems. Okay. Uh, and emphysema. Okay. So once again, okay, what it actually helps with in the lungs, okay, it actually helps with, they're called basal cells. Okay. Now I've sort of talked about this, Jake, when we covered like long COVID. Okay. And so basal cells are one of the major progenitor cells within the lungs and the role of the basal cells is to actually help with the renewal and the replenishment of the other epithelium within the airways. Okay. Now, if it's doing that 
if it's actually helping with the basal cells and it's helping with this renewal replenishment process, it's also going to help with the intestinal stem cells or the progenitor cells within the gastrointestinal tract as well. Okay. So for people who've had huge amounts of oxidative stress and free radical damage, where they've created damage to the basal cells and the intestinal stem cells, the progenitor cells, GHK has some, once again, uh, has shows some huge promise. Okay. Um, so I guess that's where I got really intrigued with GHK, but also, I mean, I, I know, you know, this Kyle, obviously Jake in terms of, you know, they had used in the cosmetic realms. Okay. So they actually use it for the rejuvenation of the skin. Okay. They also use it for male pattern baldness. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think it, I think it's a little bit more beneficial to use as a serum in that instance, or do sometimes they, um, using injectable there or like, um, I haven't really had to use it with, uh, with the uh, clients for, you know, uh, male pattern ball list. Okay. But, um, GHK is only three amino acids long. So topical absorption and the kilodalton size of it is small enough that absorption topically is as good as it'll ever get for any peptides being BBC has a lower than, um, GHK absorption because it's 15 versus three. So GHK is in these preparations for balding for anti-aging management. Good old Aussie Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, Dave, so you, with the GHK, just to clarify, okay. there's, there's two different types in there. You can get GHK and GHKCU, and GHK is without the copper. Is that correct? Are you familiar with that? Do you know why people would use it without the copper? I've never really thought about it. It is one of those uh, peptides through injectable. Okay. That can be pretty painful at the point of injection. Um, so once again, that's why, you know, some people can report that they, they can be a lot more uncomfortable. Okay. I mean, obviously I'd like, hopefully we get Kyle back at one, at some stage. Okay. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I'm sure when Kyle comes back, what he would say, this is obviously one of the peptides where, you know, I, I know you can use like a liposymal. Okay. And there's, uh, you know, there's documentation where, well, obviously like orally. Okay. Uh, but once Kyle comes back, you'll probably say where some of the issues are orally with something like uh, GHK. Um, but, and I think like they sort of say that you can use like orally, you can use like, you know, like 10 milligrams and you might do that for 30 straight days. But once again, I'm sure Kyle's going to say, well, how effective is something like uh, a liposymal GHK? Well, it's not going to be as, uh, beneficial as obviously like using like injectable in this instance. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I know like, even if you look at the dosaging of something like GHK, uh, because it's got benefits, you know, around cancer as well. Okay. So there is, um, research you can actually find on that. And, and in some instances with the dosaging, they're going up as high as like, you know, 50 milligrams, hundred milligrams, 150 milligrams, like actually like crazy high dosaging with, um, injectable GHK. Uh, but maybe if it was just something for like, you know, what I'm talking about to actually help with the basal cells and the progenitor cells, uh, it, you know, around about like two milligrams, five milligrams, might be like five milligrams to 10 days or two milligrams to 30 straight days. But, um, I don't know, is Kyle back? You might want to like, uh, am, I, am I back? Can you hear me? Yep. We can, we can hear you. <laughs> um, I don't know where we left, but I was going to say like, with copper peptides, GHKCU, that's one that people do react to when they inject it because of the copper in it. It can sting a lot for like 10 to 15 minutes after injecting. That's why people might just use GHK by itself. 
Um, apart from that, I'm <laughs> internet dropped out while you guys were talking, so I don't know where we're at. Sorry. With GHKCU, does that have much of an effect in copper levels? Um, it could with long-term use. Um, I, I don't think it would. The amount of copper peptide in it when you're looking at milligram. That said, though, the amount of copper you need is actually pretty low in the milligram amount. So it, it, I completely would be within the realm of possibility that it would if you were to use it long-term. Um, I know if you use GHK without the CU, the GHK1 injector will go and find copper within within circulation. It will bind to it in the body. So that could actually reduce the copper levels in that respect. But the amount of copper, what the ratio of GHK to copper is, I'm not exactly sure what it is. You know how like we're using carnosine as a percentage zinc, percentage carnosine. I don't actually know the percentage breakdown for the GHK. See you. And then like just in, in terms of one of the things that I mentioned, like obviously the, the issues around atopical corticosteroids and I mean, GHK really should just, yeah, from my perspective, just be a replacement for that. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, especially for even things like, you know, people have got like rosacea, like, yeah, you know, um, yeah, I don't know if there's any documentation around things like psoriasis and expa, but, um, I mean, would you agree with me that like really something like GHK, I mean, I know there's already a lot of serums that they do use in the cosmetic realms. Okay? Yeah. Um, but from my perspective, it should just be a rep replacement. It should. And it would theoretically work because I used to have terrible eczema before I started BPC and I haven't even had a flare up in two years, apart from when I lived in mold when that ruined my gut and then the, the effects of that ended up, you know, becoming s systemic. But yeah, there's plenty of um, topical brands that, that do sell a GHK copper peptide, but similar to the supplement industry, the, the skincare industry is a bit more of a wild west than even the already wild west, um, supplement industry. And the fact that the dosages that people put in, um, of this peptide, because peptides aren't cheap, they're very hard to synthesize and quite expensive machinery to make them. The amount they actually use in a product that they end up selling for some do it right. And then you see a price tag of over $200, like a seer custom. And then there's other ones that have it in there and they don't tell you how much is in it. They don't tell you what percentage. And then you'll know that you've got GHK copper in your product. If it has that Royal blue color to yeah. it, that's the yep. copper. And you really should see it unless you've got something that's completely like reacted to the copper to change the color of it. Very noticeable. And if you don't see that, I would speculate that you probably have got such an insignificant amount that you're probably not going to see an effect from it. Mm. Mm. Do you know what percentages should be for skincare? Um, um, I think it's about between one and three percent. So it's not. That's what I thought too. Yeah, yeah. We're we're, we're making one in the future that's going to have one and a half percent on it, and there's also going to be another one called AHK, which is similar to GHK but has better absorption through the through the skin. Um, yeah. Interesting. Now. Dave, you mentioned about using GHKC for like hair loss. Um, Carl, are you familiar with anyone using BPC topically for hair loss? For hair loss with BPC, not particularly. Um, okay. it, again, I think the size of the BPC peptide is too big, too big uh, without like using something like evening primrose oil or a topical arginine or even derma rolling before yep. to get, get it systemic. Even with the copper peptide, it really helps 
to do those things. If your purposes for using it is hair loss, like the red light therapy, the derma rolling to make sure that as much of that peptide that you're putting in, which isn't cheap, but as much of that is, is absorbed as possible. But the big ones for hair loss that I've been looking at are ones like zinc thymolin. Um, that one's got a lot of promising studies on it. It has an effect on the antigen phase. There's ones called PTD, DBM. That one's really promising, but it's a very difficult one to work. Um, it requires refrigeration and is pretty unstable. Um, I think it only would last about two months from when it's synthesized to when it would be degraded. You know much about PT141? You want to tell us about that if you know much? The Lady Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think I said it all, huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, look, I think it's an interesting peptide because I don't know about you, Dave, but one of the questions I get the most is what can I do to boost my libido? I get that question so, so, so often. And from a supplement standpoint, obviously, you know, when it comes to libido and sexual function, I think there's a, a lot to be said just about diet and lifestyle. But from a supplement perspective, there's not really anything that's a magic pill. You know, there's things like maca, which, you know, some studies support some benefit of, or, you know, maybe dopamine aids, things like l or mimosa, um, not mimosa, um, you know, that's it, mercutopurians. But there seems to not be a whole lot, which is super magic, but PT141 is a peptide that potentially could meet that need, isn't it? From what I've heard, yeah. I've uh... <laughs> I've never not used given, it. Not giving too much away. <laughs> that is not the yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, it's not one I've delved deep into. It's one I've heard in passing, but, you know, um, you know, sexual performance has not really been something that's been on my radar. Um, definitely, theoretically, would help a lot. Um, from a perspective, from a woman's perspective, you can't boost testosterone to get them in the mood. So <laughs> without having potential side effects, um, MAC is probably the exception to that, but yeah, I believe it works on the brain, increasing libido that way rather than other means than it is for the female. So. Don't you think like, you know, like if you look at something like pharmaceuticals, I mean, obviously the pull towards pharmaceuticals goes because obviously people have got an issue, okay, and they just want relief from that issue like yeah. immediately. That's the pull, yeah, okay? And that's why I'm saying like peptide therapy, okay, it, that's why I'm saying it's, a, it's, 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 for me, it's a logical replacement. Okay. Because you're getting a lot more bang for your buck. I mean, a lot of the things that we're talking about here, like probably didn't think I was going to mention it, but I am going to mention it. Okay. But something like DSIP. Okay. So Delta, Delta sleep inducing peptide. Okay. Well, let's just look at that around sleep. Okay. I mean, they, they've shown that, uh, no issues around addiction. Okay. Well documented yet. Okay. Uh, then actually helping with things like pain management and actually, you know, what I told you is like, you know, seven, I mean, there was six out of seven people that actually documented like improvements around like, like helping with pain management. Okay. Um, and actually helping with aspects around depression and that like, yes, documented around sleep, but there's all these other benefits as well. Okay. And if you compare that to something like sleeping medications, I mean, I actually quoted like, you know, something like in 2010, okay, where they were sort of saying, just adverse reactions, overdose, okay, complications associated with uh, sleeping medications in that year was something like 320,000 people to 507,000 people, which for me is just like, it's mind boggling, okay? So then we've got something like DSIP, okay, which also is giving me all these other benefits, okay? Um, well, once again, like to, I'm just going, okay, this has got bang for your buck 
okay, it covers all these things, okay, but we're not getting the addiction issues and we're not getting the adverse reactions. Very interesting one to look at. Did you use it um, intranasally or was that injectable or is this just something you've seen in your research? Oh, look, I have used it, like I haven't used it personally, okay, but I actually have used it with a client and that was actually uh, like nasal, okay, Um, and actually did document like, you know, probably once again, what I said, like more improvements around like, you know, mood and behavior. I mean, like there was benefits to the sleep, but I, once again, like maybe with clients, I mean, it's, that's a very small sample size, you know what I mean? Okay. Where, okay. Maybe I've, I've seen more, uh, benefits around like sleep with like melatonin or like maybe using a bit of a soup of like, you know, something like, uh, well, definitely Fenerboot, but I'm, I mean, it's a shame. Like it's pretty hard to get Fenerboot nowadays. Okay. But uh, some like, you know, Fenerbahce and melatonin and even maybe some like Magnolia bark having like, you know, huge benefits around sleep. But just for some of those uh, aspects around mood and uh, like, you know, bouts of depression. Yeah. Okay. So it's a small sample size, but um, I don't know if you've, you know, um, ever explored it or even thought about, you know, utilizing it in a sleep, uh, you know, uh, in a sleep uh, supplement. My, my, um, whole process around peptides is if they're not oral, I don't really want to do them because as soon as you start to do injectables, then the, the rigor that you need to go through with creating the products and also selling things like needles or bacteriostatic water is just too much of a headache. And it also paints a big target on my back and puts me in the sort of category of, of pharmaceuticals rather than supplements. So all of, I love the th- in theory and in practice, when I've used them, I love injectable peptides, but also from a, a, um, consumer use perspective, it takes a special client to actually commit to you telling them to do injectables and them doing them. So just ease of use, all of the oral ones. The good thing about peptides is as we develop our understanding about them more, we realize that you can modify them or you can get sort of fractions or fragments of the peptide rather than the full, like TB500, for example, TB500 and TB4 are the same. TB500 is the base peptide, like the large peptide, and TB4 is a fragment of the TB500. TB4 is, does work orally in capsule. It is banned in Australia, it's scheduled, but it is one that you can use orally, whereas TB500 does not work orally because it's too large. So as peptide sciences and all of the people doing the research develop things, we're finding ways to make things work. I think there's even, um, one of the, I've forgotten which one it is, but basically anything that we are injecting that companies and groups are finding ways to try and make these orally available. Carl, there's a couple other peptides that you sell in different supplements. You want to tell us about some of those? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, one's called the Razotide Acetate and that sort of, I think I'm the only company selling it in the world, mainly because in America, I believe it, uh, patented, so you can't sell it over there, but, um, lorazotide acetate is AT1001 and that one is in the GI repair formula because it's a zonulin antagonist. So I know you guys have spoken about zonulin in the past, but basically this is one of the main drivers of intestinal hyperpermeability via gliadin and via glyphosate and um, lipopolysaccharide sort of triggers this zonulin protein, which increases the permeability of the tight junctions. Well, that zonulin protein, if you inhibit it, 
it basically is like sealing the gut, keeping those tight junctions from opening up. While on the other end, you've got BPC-157, sort of the, the analogy I use is lorazotide is like if you were to have a wound, it's like using stitches or staples on your wound while the BPC works from underneath, sort of heal the wound. You might need the stitches or the staples in the short term um, and they, it's definitely going to help the staples by themselves will have an effect, but while the BPC and all of the other wound healing ingredients like zincarnosines and tributyrin butyrate are working from below to heal or within to heal, um, the lorazotides, you know, it, synergizing well with all those other things. Mm. And so you were saying that there's a fair bit of research actually using this for like things like IBD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, celiac disease is the big one because of its mechanism, like gluten and zonulin are like synonymous with each other. So there's a lot of um, clinical trials and already published studies on lorazotide acetate as um, a treatment for um, people who've been glutened, for example, as like an oral medication. They're developing it in, in that respect uh, for celiac disease mainly. But there's been a few on, um, I believe, I forgot if it's Crohn's or colitis, but there's again, like there's big interest in peptides from pharmaceutical companies if they can be patented. Otherwise, if they can't. Then they're not really looked at. There's any other any other peptides you're currently selling or you're looking at developing and selling in the future? Yeah, there's one called KPV, which is a three amino acid peptide. Similar, it's very similar to GHK and to BPC in the fact that it helps with the gut epithelium with this with the um help repair the stomach and the GI tract. Um, it's a fragment of MSH or alpha MSH, which is melanocyte stimulating hormone and the melanocortin system is one that's fascinating to me. And when I used melanotan, which is sort of like the parent larger peptide of this KPV, I got great benefits for the tan, but also, um, libido went up and in, I felt my inflammation went down substantially because of that melanocortin, um, inflammatory cascade that it triggers so what kpv is is the msh um the melanotan minus the tanning effect and purely isolated down to only having the anti-inflammatory anti-il6 anti-il10 tnf alpha effects without sort of the tanning and all the other stuff that people have and it is orally absorbable whereas melanotan isn't because of the peptide size Interesting. That sounds very interesting. Uh, and that would actually, I know we talked about PT141 before and we didn't go very deep into that, but that would be a similar makeup then, wouldn't it? Because that PT is pretty similar to melanotan as well, isn't it? Oh, well, it's for the libido boosting effect. And I, I think it might have some effect in the brain's anti-inflammatory systems too. But yeah, I, I don't actually know how exactly the um, melanotan has that libido boosting effect. But I remember Ben Greenfield saying, he loved it, except he couldn't. He couldn't do it because of his uncontrollable erections. They were inconvenient. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just say he's he's not wrong with that effect from melanotan. <laughs> it's um, pretty fascinating that a peptide like that can, without even much sun exposure, can have such a profound impact. So I hope that melanotan, for example, a lot of people have heard about it. I hope that illustrates to people just how powerful these things are and why we'd want to use them in a gut healing protocol versus why wouldn't you just use glutamine or why just not the naturals? Because those things take time and they're not as powerful as these ingredients. 
I remember, I think about the time I learned about peptides, it was a few years ago. And I think, Dave, this is when I started talking to you about them. And, and I'd heard, I forget who it was now, but it was like a top sort of gut health doctor um, in the US. And, you know, they used to do all these dysbiosis protocols and then they would do like an eight or 12 week sort of gut, like leaky gut protocol at the end of it. And I remember them saying that they'd stopped doing all of their gut protocols, like all the leaky gut protocol at the end of the dysbiosis protocols. And all they were doing was just doing a cycle of BPC. They just completely swapped it out for BPC and that's it. Which I heard that, I was like, oh my God, what is, what is BPC? I'm going to check this out. That sounds amazing. But it's like you said, you know, it's compared to using, obviously there's still a space for, you know, glutamine and zincarnosine and some of these other compounds, but you know, if we could, I guess the synergistic effect of using both, like that's just going to be next level, isn't it? Yeah. And obviously like, obviously the, the, the compounds that you've come up with and obviously your supplements, I mean, yeah, I mean, we can talk about all the benefits of BPC-157, but then if you start combining that with something like, you know, quercetin and zinc alcarnosine and, and butyrate, I mean, like, you know, butyrate as a short chain fatty acid is amazing for reducing inflammation around the intestinal cells and actually helping with the formation of new epithelium in intestinal cells. So you start, I mean, I, I think that's the, where the magic is, okay? Like we always talk about that. I mean, when you look at research, I mean, you're looking at it independently. So you're looking at research based on BPC-157 or research based on GHK, a copper peptide. You're looking at research independently with quercetin. But where's the research when you take BPC-157, combine that with quercetin, combine that with butyrate, okay? And now, what? I like. I reckon we're going to start to find out some, some, some pretty significant information. I mean, that's something that we talk about all the time, Joe. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like you said, just that combination, like I know for me, when I get clients with IBD, it, like the first thing I do is put them on Ultimate GI. Like it's, I can't think of a better blend for IBD conditions than Ultimate GI. Like it's got, like you said, it's got butyrate in there. It's got the zincarnosine. It's got quercetin. It's got like, it's just, it's like, for me, it's like that blend was made for IBD. I just can't think of something better to use. And, you know, obviously this is not medical advice or anything, but the amount of clients I've had who've chosen to come off medication who've got IBD, who've chosen to come off medication. And ultimately the bulk of what we've done is this diet change and using ultimate GI. Like it's just remarkable, you know, almost time and time again, that's what I'm saying. It's funny you say that because it was actually pretty much exactly designed for someone with um, Crohn's disease. My housemate um, has Crohn's colitis, uh, not Crohn's and colitis, just Crohn's and celiac. And I formulated it for her, but she's a nurse and, um, very resistant to any witch doctor formulation. So she never end up, ended up taking it. Happily, happily enough, it's helped thousands of people. Uh, and I developed it for her. And it's only going to get better too. I, I mentioned the KPV peptide. Well, that will be added to the GI repair in the next, um, I believe, two months from now. And next production run, we'll have that in it as well. So three peptides and then the other three natural ingredients with the both forms of quercetin, like quercetin locally is anhydrous. It's poor absorption, but the effect that you want from quercetin, you kind of want it locally too, to have that sealing effect on the gut. Whereas the EMIQ, the enzymatically modified isoquercetin being 40 times more absorptive is going to sort of help more systemically if people have those histamine uh, intolerance from their gut issues. So I did my best with it, guys. <laughs> I'm glad you <laughs> like it and I'm glad to hear that it's helping people. Yeah. Now, guys, I know we should probably conclude because 
it's a bit of been a marathon episode and there's a lot there. One of our longest ones. Isn't yeah, it? I think it probably has been. Is there anything you guys want to add before we finish up? Carl, we obviously need to know where do we find, um, you know, some of your supplements if people do want to learn more. You can find me at leveluphealth.com, um, LVLUP. There's no E's in Level Up. Um, and yeah, I've got heaps of products. I know the, I've got the Tudka that you guys use as well for sort of liver issues. Plenty more in the pipeline too with the skincare products. So keep an eye out on what we got. And um, yeah, thanks for having me guys. Also, I'd say like, you know, PEA, if anyone wants a replacement for paracetamol, Panadol, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, well, the last thing I would say is like, uh, I, I, I'm really passionate around like peptide therapy. I think it has the potential to be a game changer. Um, and I think like, if we really want this to change, I mean, it's got to, it's, it's got to come from people listening to this. Okay. Like we've got to demand the change. Okay. It's not, it's not going to happen from the top. It's going to happen from the movement. That's the only thing I would say. So like people, like when you demand this, okay, this is what's going to change it. Yeah, absolutely. With all, with all the potential regulations in the, in the pipelines that are being discussed about it being banned or prescription only, it's really like now that we need to stand up and sort of try and protect it as much as we can, because I know my life without BBC, apart from like just my personal life, my health would not be where it is. Having lived in mold, having been through chronic stress and having had gut issues myself, like the reason I made it is importing it from overseas was near impossible with our customs. And now if they're going to take it all away from us from within, and then I just be like, oh, what do we do now? <laughs> so people just kind of need to, I don't really, unfortunately to be a pessimist, I don't know what we do about it apart from protest, <laughs> say BTC <laughs> process. I don't know. I'm all, I'm all down for a peptide process, <laughs> protest. God. We'll piggyback on the next freedom one, huh? <laughs> Free GHK. Free GHK. <laughs> anyway, guys, thank you for joining us today for this episode. Um, if you guys listening found this uh, interesting and you learn a bit, then drop us a review or, or let us know if you want us to do a part two because that's just a drop in a bucket. There's, I mean, we covered, I don't know, five or six different peptides there, but there's, you know, how many do you say there were, Carl? Do you say how many peptides we've identified? There's 9,000 in the body, but supplementally are probably close to 80 to 100 that I'm aware of. Yeah. So there's, there's always plenty more we can talk about if you guys are interested. So maybe we'll do a part two in a feature if you guys like that. Uh, but thank you again, Carl, for joining us. And we'll uh, yeah, look forward to a part two at some point. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it. Thanks, Carl. Thanks for everything you do, mate. Oh, cheers, guys. Back at you. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.